Welcome back to Left Anchor. I'm Ryan Cooper. And I'm Alexi the Greek. Very happy to welcome Matt Sitman from the wonderful Know Your Enemy podcast. I'm sure a lot of the listeners have heard of it. If you haven't, check it out. It's really wonderful. Um, But also a great writer and editor. I first uh, discovered you, Matt, back when uh, The Daily Dish was the best blog on the internet, (laughs) back when blogs were a thing. Uh, It was just, you know, say what you will about Andrew Sullivan. That blog was just tremendous. I, 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 you know, read it every day. And I uh, and I remember to this day when, when you wrote about like Christopher Isherwood and Vedanta Hinduism, I'm like, yes, yeah. yes, this is awesome. Where else, where else can you find this? You know? Yeah. So, um, yeah, that's when I first discovered your great writing and editing. And, and now you, you, you write and edit for great publications like Scent Magazine, editor, uh, at, uh, at Commonweal mm-hmm. and many other wonderful things. So, so please welcome and, and even tell us a bit more about the great work you're doing, if you don't mind. Sure. Well, very quickly, I'm associate editor at Commonweal and we're, um, a 95-year-old uh, kind of liberal, progressive Catholic magazine. Um, I, I recently joined the editorial board of Descent, where I published. Uh, well, I publish a few pieces a year there, and I, I really love Descent too. And uh, I'm the co-host of Know Your Enemy with my good friend Sam Adler Bell. So I think those are the three main uh, affiliations in my life: Commonweal, Descent, and Know Your Enemy. Nice. But as Pope Francis, the Holy Father, says in the encyclical we'll be talking about, you are much more than the sum of those parts. <laughs> so, right. uh, you know, we, we really we really appreciate you in, in, in the fullness of your humanity and the dignity of your person being here to, uh, to tell us about this wonderful, really powerful encyclical, I thought. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, before, before we dive into it, because it's a, a really rich text with a lot we could cover, more than we could possibly cover in one episode. Um, if you wouldn't mind kind of just introducing uh, a little bit about, you know, why encyclicals are something to pay attention to and, and, and what, they, what, you know, what purpose they serve as far as you understand it. Sure. Well, I think the main thing to understand about uh, papal encyclicals is that they indicate a very high priority for the Pope. So um, if you want to understand, I think, uh, a particular papacy, if you want to understand Pope Francis, look at his encyclicals. And uh, one of his previous encyclicals was Laudato Si uh, on caring for our common home. And I think that was one of the most important documents put out by any world leader, let alone religious leader, um, in recent memory. And I think, as we'll discuss, when you see the content of this latest uh, encyclical, uh, Fratelli Tutti, um, that's something that indica- on social solidarity and kind of the, the brotherhood and sisterhood of all human beings and what, what we owe each other and how we can live together. I think that its themes indicate just how close this is to Francis's heart. So I think for, for a general audience, that's what I would say. say documents a Pope puts out, um, Pope Francis has put out a handful of them. I think maybe this is the third. And um, uh, again, they just indicate that this is a high priority for him, that the themes we're about to discuss are really close to Francis's heart. No, that's a, that's a great introduction. And I really um, was amazed stylistically about how not just scripturally based, but also how um, conversant in, in political theory the document is, but also in, in the most loving way possible, how it seems like a massive subtweet of Trump, white supremacy and capitalism. <laughs> I know. I know. Um, that's really true. Um, I would just say to to emphasize something you, you noted, it's a really beautifully written document, even though it's you know in translation. I find one of the pleasures of reading Francis's encyclicals, as well as some of his, you know, occasional homilies and uh, other statements, that he has a real gift for a, a simple but graceful poetic language. And there are just many phrases in this that are really beautiful and striking. And uh, if any listeners are interested in reading it, it's actually just really lovely to read, actually. Um, and, it is beautiful. Yeah, and yeah. I was rereading some of it this afternoon, and I was just, I was struck by you, by the same thing you were, which is just how how beautifully expressed it was. And, and as you mentioned, the themes of nationalism, populism, neoliberalism. I mean, it's interesting, right? Everyone says neoliberalism doesn't exist. And by everyone, I mean a certain kind of centrist pundit. And uh, I was very pleased to see this in a papal document. So now I can say that the Holy Father himself has confirmed the existence of this phenomenon. Yeah, it's funny. He didn't call out anyone in particular except Matt Iglesias for some reason. I don't know. It was weird. <laughs> he actually does literally um, not name Twitter, but he's definitely referencing like 
Twitter wars, you know, mm-hmm. uh, which was fascinating. But but yes. the, you're right. Even that even the headings are beautiful, like dark mm-hmm. clouds over a closed world. Uh, I mean, mm-hmm. I just opened a random page here. Ancient conflicts thought long buried are breaking out anew, while instances of a myopic extremist, resentful and aggressive nationalism are on the rise. Yes. I mean, just succinct, beautiful. And he just he's just spot on sentence after sentence. Yes, totally. Um, and I think, you know, that language, maybe this is one interesting thing to begin with, which is, I was so struck in this document by the language of dreaming, the dream, like that we need to dream again, that we've quit dreaming. And um, I was reminded that one of my old teachers in graduate school was the late political theorist, Jean Bethke Elstein. And she always liked to say in her seminars, American Political Thought, that Dr. King said he had a dream and not a preference, you know, um, that there's a certain moral imagination at work here that I think is really instructive to think about, that the way we talk about politics and how we live together um, in the very, you might say in the very language of the document itself, there's a critique of a certain um, arid, austere, liberal mindset. Yeah, so it's it's... It's beautiful and at the same time a kind of epistemological critique in that way, right? Yes, totally. And I think, you know, we live in an era of cynicism. And uh, Francis talks a lot in the document just about um, kind of disappointment, you know, and uh, kind of putting people down and diminished expectations in the sense that we we can't do new things. We can't move forward. We can't start again. And I just think the language of dreaming and hope really is when and again this is a favorite line of mine but hope is not the same as optimism either so i i just think the very language itself captures something of that and he's really calling us to um well do big things and and kind of you know don't be afraid to be earnest and hopeful and really believe that different a different world is possible yeah and so he's uh he's definitely critical of 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 capitalism or at least capitalism in the sense that it's practiced um here you know like in the 21st century united states and you know across the world um but he's he's not critical of it in a in a necessarily social sense he's uh you know he he talks about how it it erodes you know the sort of like the the morality of of you know individuals and their relationships with each other, which is like sort of overlapping with like a kind of Marxist critique, perhaps. But it's <laughs> not you know about exploitation per se. Like it's about like one's spiritual life and one's internal you know be uh, <laughs> you know thoughts and their and and external behaviors towards towards our you know neighbors or brothers and sisters. So <laughs> like maybe can you situate that like like i know that the catholic church i'm def- i'm not catholic uh and mm-hmm. and my knowledge of the history of the catholic church is 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 spotty at best but um as i recall it's been fairly conservative for you know kind of hundreds of years uh, uh up until you know like somewhat recently in the 20th century, there's been some sort of like disputes about that. There's some, the, the Jesuits and the, and the, and the, uh, you know, the, the, the social the gospel, whatever you call it. And like, especially in Latin America. Um, mm-hmm. and, and so like, how is what Francis is saying, like kind of tied into what the, the church has been teaching for, you know, for a long time about, you know, community and tradition and so on? And how is it sort of a break from, you know, like a more, the more conservative Pope that came before him? Sure. Well, you know, I think one thing to understand about the, the kind of history you're referencing, especially in the last century or so, is that, you know, the church did fear communism and communist regimes. And so yeah. I think for that reason, there was always a sense of I don't want to say having it both ways, but sort of criticizing the excesses of capitalism, but not kind of giving an inch to communist regimes and communism, Um, you know, godless materialist communism, you might say. And and I think that, you know, um, a pope like John Paul II, who uh, was not the pope that preceded Francis, but the one before him, 
or, or the one before his predecessor, uh, you know, he was Polish. And so the Cold War was a major preoccupation of his and the communist regimes were a major preoccupation of his. And that really stamped the church's, um, I think, approach to these questions. It, it wanted to you know, rein in capitalism, but not seem like it was giving too much space to uh you know, communism or even socialism. Now, I think what's interesting is that now that the Cold War is over, Francis is a pope that comes from Latin America. He's Argentinian. And he's, during his time, he's really rehabilitated and kind of made um, uh, uh, liberation theology much more kind of accepted in a formal way in the church. Uh, And that's really important. Uh, But I also think you do see that you know, he doesn't talk about capitalism or socialism or uh, communism. It, you know, he doesn't really use those labels so much as he talks about uh, technocrats and neoliberalism and globalization and kind of the effects on people, I think, as you pointed toward, but also the way forms of domination are justified by some of these paradigms, right? A technocratic paradigm, uh, a paradigm of globalization. And he's really... And I think it might actually be more effective. He kind of lets the work of politics. He doesn't. This is not a document that lays out like an economic program. Uh, right. And and so I think he's kind of leaving open the work of politics that those of us who read this document or any citizen, right, who has a concern for the common good, uh, can can figure out in our own context kind of what what moving forward in the way he suggests could mean. And that just means labels like socialism and capitalism aren't a, a major uh, factor in this um, uh, document, even if people like us might think that something like democratic socialism is, you know, seems closer to some of what he's uh, asking us to consider than, uh, than, you know, the lack of its lack of that terminology in the document might, lead you to think. But I also would say um, it's a very bottom-up document. You know, he's he he often says to start with the concrete and local and kind of move outward. And uh, But on the other hand, he does talk about new global systems, uh, revamping the United Nations to rein in global corporations and kind of their predations. And so it's a it's not a very ideological document, even if it's critiques of certain features of the modern economic order are incredibly damning and sharp. Absolutely. And I found that he even specifically writes about the danger of terminology and, and language mm-hmm. being um, used ideologically to the, the point where there's vacuity, where there's no meaning anymore to mm-hmm. the term. Yes. And, and so you, you could understand that he does this for a reason because he says, you know, uh, look how populism and populist is being used yes. um, and, and how it's appropriated by demagogues. Mm-hmm. And, lo- and look, even the words democracy and freedom are, have become hollow. Yes. And, and and just kind of vague concepts that are uttered by politicians, uh, rather than focusing, like you said, on the concrete, on the personal, on the interpersonal, on the communal. Mm-hmm. And, and so I think, I mean, I find it to be a kind of a brilliant, imminent critique yes. that is very savvy, savvy right? Yeah. And very uh, new, nuanced, even in the way that it says, look, I, I understand uh, patriotism can be a good thing and loving your local, mm-hmm. loving your country can be good. But then he does this brilliant move where he says, that's not the same thing as essentially he's calling out like the, the Trumpists and the white supremacists. Mm-hmm. That's not the same thing as something that's just fear of the other. And in fact, mm-hmm. true appreciation for one's homeland invites hospitality and has to have an openness to others at its core. Yes. And, and so he's, he's very brilliant in how he does that. And I do think that it would cash out to something like democratic yes. socialism, but he, he, he lets you take the, take your own conclusions. Yeah, I think it might to kind of borrow the cliche. He uh, shows more than tells. And he describes more than he names. And um, I, one of the great themes of this encyclical is openness, you know, opening our hearts and then to some extent opening our minds. And so I think, you know, um, there, there would be something contradictory or at least there'd be a tension between calling for that and then, you know, kind of relying on these ideological labels that he thinks have now been emptied of most content. 
And, and I saw that he even revisited very familiar parables like mm-hmm. the Good Samaritan in in a really kind of brilliant exegetical way. <laughs> uh, and and one that I think is a lot more materialist. He says even the Good Samaritan needed the nearby inn yes. <laughs> in order to complete right. Mm-hmm. And, and I, I was thinking of this. I was reading and money <laughs> right exactly. Liza Featherstone I think just published something in Jacobin about um, rural people who who don't have hospitals nearby and and so helicopter have to take them to the hospital and then they get hit with these massive helicopter fees um, mm-hmm. because they happen to live in a place where there's nothing nearby and, and they're taking the blame and responsibility and going into debt uh, because of these structural you know, problems. And it seems like Francis is very clearly saying that's not an individual problem. That's a, a social and structural and political problem, right? Yes, totally. Um, and may- maybe just to frame this a little more, I, uh, the document begins with a really clear-sighted overview of our situation. Um, and one thing we haven't mentioned yet is the pandemic. Um, and so he started this this encyclical before the pandemic, and he kind of uses the pandemic to say that 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 that, that catastrophe has kind of laid bare all of the problems of modern society. Um, it, 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 it uh, that that, um, you know, we can kind of, the systems we live in have been exposed. Their, their weaknesses and frailties and who, it, who those systems exclude and dominate has become even more apparent. The old, right? The poor. Um, uh, th- those are, he, he really points to that. And, um, but then you're right. He kind of gives this overview that really is, a, again, very clear-sighted and helpful. And then the next move is really this beautiful exegesis of the parable of the Good Samaritan. And, yeah, and in that, some ways, then, in some ways, then the rest of the document is almost an elaboration of what it means to love your neighbor today. Right, right. <laughs> yeah, and the, the thing that I, I think I'd heard this before, but, but it was good to be reminded of it in, in the, the, it was like a, a little sermon type of, you know, a little biblical teaching uh, element from, um, in, in the text where he's talking about, you know, good, good Samaritan, like the word Samaritan, like in modern sort of parlance that like a good Samaritan is just like a nice person. It's like, oh, you're a good Samaritan. You, you stop to help somebody. <laughs> but in the context back in them days, the Samaritans were a sort of like off branch of the like Jewish people. Right. Mm-hmm. And they were hated. Like there was massive hostility between you know the the um, Israelites and the Samaritans, and so when when Jesus is talking about uh, you know the a priest and a, and a Levite walking past this injured person, and then the Samaritan, you know, it's a, like you have to sort of read some some the the, the contemporary cultural context and to get the full force of it. To say that, like, right. here, here are some two godly men, you know, to to uh, you know, a, a believer, and then an actual religious authority, and they walked past, they left this 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 suffering person by the side of the road. Here comes this outsider, someone who mm-hmm. is, you know, a, a, a member of a different, a, a you know, a group of people that that we have, you know, like hostility. We're we're where a dagger's drawn with these guys, but then this guy's he he sees him and he picks him up and puts him on his donkey and takes him to the inn and pays for his room and says uh tells the innkeeper I'll you know I'll pay for whatever this guy needs just mm-hmm. because he's a good person and in fact uh, uh Francis has a a line in there about how um unbelievers if I uh yeah, uh, paradoxically, those who claim to be unbelievers claim to be unbelievers. That's a that's an interesting <laughs> phrase. Can sometimes put God's will into practice mm-hmm. better than believers. Yes, and mm-hmm. and I thought that was like an interesting, you know, like I'm sure you know if you've been to a lot of Sunday school and stuff, that's all very familiar. <laughs> but like yeah. that's an increasingly uh, rare experience in modern America. I think it's fair to say, and. Um, you know, like the story, like it really hits when you know the 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 whole like the the history and the context of it. Yes, and um, you know, it makes for a, like a a a pretty good sort of encapsulation of what you know 
what what it should be like to live in a community. <laughs> yes, yes. No, I I can't really improve on that uh, description. Uh, but you're right that the Samaritans were considered for the Jewish people to be almost subhuman, right? Um, and yeah. so it's so telling that it's the Samaritan who actually does what is pleasing in the sight of God. Um, and and I, I think you know there's a lot we can talk about with this document, but even just that the theme of kind of openness to others, interreligious dialogue. Um, there's a lot of rich comments there that kind of really take to task religious hypocrites and those who use religion to exclude and dominate rather than care for the other. Um, uh, but I, I kind of wanted to um, just read from that section on uh, the, this, the, yes, the parable please. of the Good Samaritan. Um, and I think this is a really interesting question or, or it, point, it gets to something interesting. Um, he says, the parable clearly does not indulge in abstract moralizing, nor is its message merely social and ethical, though it, though it is that. Um, he says, it speaks to us of an essential and often forgotten aspect of our common humanity. We were created for a fulfillment that can only be found in love. We cannot be indifferent to suffering. We cannot allow anyone to go through life as an outcast. Instead, we should feel indignant challenge to emerge from our comfortable isolation and be and to be changed by our contact with human suffering that is the meaning of dignity mm. um mm. and it's just the, the there are passages like that where he talks about tending to the wounds of others and you know i would just say that it's very easy to read this uh, correctly as a critique of nationalism uh you know racial and religious discrimination um a certain kind of populism uh, technocracy and a certain kind of globalization. But he also, I, I do think there's a way in which those of us who might think that our political views mean we're better <laughs> or, you know, we don't, we don't have these nasty views. We, we're not retrograde right wingers. <laughs> I think that that challenge to enter into the suffering of others um, and to tend to the particulars of people's lives in a way that I think sort of pushes again, as, as I was saying previously, pushes against ideology in a way um, I found that very, very telling. And I think um, it, it's just a, a call to, it's just a call to realize that holding the right ideas is not enough. And there's a real conversion of heart towards those who are suffering, those who are poor, those who are outcast. Um, um, and, and just to that end, uh, I think one of the really striking things about that, that jumped out at me in this exegesis of the parable of the Good Samaritan uh, is he he emphasizes that those who pass by the man who had been robbed and beaten on the side of the road, uh, he says that these people were holding important social positions, but lacked in real concern for the common good. And then he said they would not waste a couple of minutes caring for the injured man or even calling in help. And, and he goes on to then say, uh, the good Samaritan gave him something, meaning the man on the side of the road, he gave him something that in our frenetic world we cling to tightly. He gave his time. Um, he said certainly he had his own plans for that day, his own needs, commitments, and desires, yet he was able to put all that aside when confronted with someone in need. Without even knowing the injured man, he saw him as deserving of his time and attention. Yeah. It's brilliantly accessible to everyone, yeah. right? I mean, who, who can't relate to that question of, do I take time away from my plans and my busy day to attend to something that is of no benefit to me, to a person I perhaps don't mm-hmm. know, that diverts me from my control of my mm-hmm. life and just give time and attention to someone yeah. in need? And I, I would say that one of the, this kind of gets at something I alluded to earlier, which is that I'm very struck by the way there's this almost toggling between or moving back and forth between the concrete and bigger political problems and, you know, moving from the care the Samaritan showed for the man on the side of the road, then to questions of how we organize society politically and economically. Mm -hmm. And it, I think he's almost telling us that if you don't tend to the particular, uh, that's how you slip into ideology. That's how somehow even sometimes noble political aspirations turn into abstractions that manage to dominate and exclude. And uh, so that's why I mentioned why I thought it even had something to say to people on the left. It shouldn't just be something where we say, oh, great, 
the, the Pope has enlisted himself in our cause against capitalism, <laughs> right? right? It's, it's actually, right. it's, no, actu- it's, it's actually calling us to a sort of personal conversion. And I don't necessarily mean that in the, in a religious conversion sense, like adopting a certain faith. I mean that in the sense of having our hearts stirred by the poor and the suffering, the weak and the wounded, and that there's this relationship between how we tend to the particular people suffering right in front of us. And, the big ideas we have about politics and economics and society. Yeah. He writes that we all have the interior struggle um, and that each of us has something of the wounded man, something of the robber, something of the passerby, something of the good Samaritan. Mm -hmm. And and so it's kind of, it's, you know, at, at the same time, he shows these kind of examples that we might identify with Trump or, or even the Democrats or, or people that maybe represents the problem, but also all of us have all of these things uh-huh. and, and to which things, which, which, which parts of us do we activate? I, I, I think it's, yeah. a, you know, it's, it's a beautiful way to, uh-huh. and I think especially for a certain, well, I was going to say certain kind of liberal or progressive, uh, but it really applies to all of us. There's a phrase he uses where he says, sometimes, uh, the peripheries are actually very close to us in the way so many forms of suffering are hidden in modern society. So, you know, that even people who live a neighborhood over, um, that's not what we think of when we, you know, we think of the disaster on the border, right. And what we're doing, our government is doing to children on the border, or we think about a drought in Africa, or we think of, you know, just far flung examples of, uh, human suffering. And he's really saying there's so much suffering much closer to you than you realize. And that, that, uh, that lack of attention to that uh, is a form of that distorts our understanding of things too. Yeah. That, that to, to return to what you said, Alexi, um, I think the, 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 the segment that this, the paragraph that got me the hardest was, was when he turned away from like the, the, uh, you know, sort of reinterpreted the parable to be to be like uh, about the internal conflict within every person. Um, you know, not to say that like the priest, the the Levite, the uh, the the robber, the injured person, and the Samaritan are all uh, different, but that each person has that within themselves to some degree or another. Mm-hmm. And he says, which of these persons do you identify with? This question, blunt as it is, is direct and incisive. Which of these characters do you resemble? We need to acknowledge that we are constantly tempted to ignore others, especially the weak. Let us admit that for all the progress we have made, we are still illiterate when it comes to accompanying, caring for, and supporting the most frail and vulnerable members of our developed societies. We've mm-hmm. become accustomed to looking the other way, passing by, ignoring situations until they affect us directly. Yes. And it's like, yep, I have 100% stepped over a homeless yes. person because yeah. of my wallet was in the wrong pocket or whatever. Like, we've all done it, uh-huh. you know? And and I think, like, my, my response to that is like, okay, yeah, on the one hand, like, here's a problem that can, can really only be solved permanently with politics, with the welfare state. And other, uh-huh. you know, social systems that would catch everyone. Uh-huh. But on the other hand, that doesn't excuse me from not doing what would have been costless to me in yes. that moment to to take out a five dollar bill and give it to someone. You know that to okay, my beer budget is down by zero point five percent for the month. Uh huh. Like like I could have done it and I didn't, and that was wrong. Uh-huh. And and yet, you know, it's like that's a thing we all do, and we all, all of us, unless we're saints, like we got to work on that. And I think that you know, it's like, uh-huh. fuck. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, it's it's um, again for all the obvious kind of targets of criticism uh, that you you see when you read this. I think it's a document that every person who reads it should feel, in a way, condemned by. You know. Um, yeah. And, uh, I, I just, again, want to emphasize how that move between, you know, what we do as individuals, um, because on the other hand, you know, Ryan, Pope Francis would say, Ryan, you should have given that guy five bucks. It doesn't matter if your beer budget is slightly reduced, but he also, but he also says that that kind of private charity or personal kindness is not an excuse 
to forsake the big systemic change that needs to happen. Right. Yeah. And right. so he's Absolutely. always, so when I say he's moving back and forth between those things and sees them actually as interrelated, that's partly what I mean. It's, it's, you might think it, on the one hand, he, you know, is criticizing, uh, you know, a certain like ideological approach to things and, and saying, Oh, well, no system can solve every problem. That's not exactly what he's saying. That might be true in a, a formal sense, but he's saying that the two go hand in hand, that your personal charity and your personal yes. kindness uh, actually helps us see what we need to do at a broader level. And you, it almost moves from that concrete and local outward and the form of the encyclical itself takes that form, right? It moves from a parable in the New Testament about the Good Samaritan to then sweeping statements about, again, needing to reform the UN, needing to rein in uh, the financialization of the economy and uh, multinational corporations. And uh, the the, the relationship between those two things is partly what stood out to me in this document. And it's, uh, and, uh, you know, but it is very, Francis is a pastor and I hate to kind of contrast a pastoral approach with a more sophisticated theological approach. That's not what I'm saying, but just again, for listeners who might not have read it, I'm struck by the amount of criticism he gives to online relationships. Right. And, yeah, I was and just about to bring that up. Yeah. And the way that, uh, what I mentioned with the, the good Samaritan who gave of his time, he says, there's no real substitute for really face to face friendships. And, spending time with people and intimately getting to know their suffering and pain. And um, uh, he makes that great distinction between neighbors and associates, <laughs> uh, which I really like. Yes. Yeah. It's um, brilliant. Just, you know, that there's oh, a way it, in which we can arrange our online way, uh, online lives so that we're mainly talking to people who agree with us. And uh, rather than right. sort of, I don't want to say the randomness, but the diversity of people that if you're involved in your neighborhood or your community in some way you come across, there's one form of exclusion is through digital relationships that mean you're really only talking to people who basically agree with you or share certain views with you or whatever. And so there's these wonderful, just practical um very earthy uh, examples of just spending time with people and and loving particular people in all their complexity and messiness and fuck ups with um, you know and kind of in contrast to the carefully curated uh, relationships right. where you we have can just online. unfriend yes. somebody right yes. where you can just you know uh, avoid conflicts because he says that that time is is for interactions but also he, he uses the word encounter yes. a lot. And, and and I think the suggestion is you can't really have true encounters online, right? You need to have the messiness of real life, the messiness of face to face, and the kind of slow complexity of developing real real relationships in uh -huh. that way. And and and, and I, I want to come back to the important thing you're pointing out about this. Uh, I would call it like an isomorphism between the personal and, and the structural. Um, you know, it reminds me of Plato's Republic, <laughs> where, where very consciously, right, very consciously Plato says, okay, to understand the human soul and the disharmony and the conflict in the human soul and how to have it harmonized and, and peaceful and happy, you, you need to blow it up and, and look at the yes. city. And, and it's really a, a, a kind of an examination of both at the same time, because what is a city? You know, if, if Romney's says that corporations are people, guess what? Cities are people, right? Like a polis, a polis is made of people. And so there, there's a sense in which Trump is a symptom, right? Of a it's a spirit of a regime he's representing. And, and, and that is, of course, not just producing the kind of subjects that we have, uh, which he does do, but also it's reflecting what was already there. And there is this concern, as Ryan said, for the spiritual and the interior. Mm -hmm. But he, he points out that that is that subject formation is shaped by these political, economic, like larger forces. And so, of, of course, people are, are acting like this. Of course, people are doing these things. Mm -hmm. uh, if that's the kind of structural uh, incentives and, and um, you know, requirements that, that uh, they have to adhere to to survive. Yes, right? totally. That, that uh, actually comparison to Plato's Republic is, I hadn't thought of it, but now I'm, uh, I won't derail us by pausing to ponder that. But it's very, I think it's very apt. And uh, uh, when we're done, I will spend some time this evening uh, <laughs> thinking about that. But, yeah. Awesome. Yeah. And the, uh, um, to return to the the question of the, the, the sort of fake digital community, I thought that was, that was kind of interesting. Um, mm -hmm. You know, he says, uh, he says, quote, 
Digital relationships, which do not demand the slow and gradual cultivation of friendships, stable interaction, or the building of a consensus that matures over time, have the appearance of sociability. Uh-huh. Yet they do not really build community. Instead, they tend to disguise and expand the very individualism that finds expression in xenophobia <laughs> and in contempt for the vulnerable. Digital connectivity is not enough to build bridges. It's not capable of uniting humanity. And... Um, this was a thing where, like, I, I have a little quibble about this, I think, because mm-hmm. on one level, he was definitely correct. Like, like there are people, you know, people who I consider friends who, like, have, have just, like, written off completely because of a, a, a totally ridiculous spat over shit that nobody cares about um, on online, you know, on, on, on Twitter or elsewhere. Um, and yet, you know, I, I think that like there is a co- a connection there. Yes. And I think also the 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 connection, you know, like it's it's not maybe it's not enough to build bridges, but it's enough to start building a bridge. You yes. Know, that that one might finish in the form of of actual face to face communication, and also that you know, like like the kind of structure of of like digital institutions doesn't give get a lot of uh um attention in here but yeah. i think that you know the uh the the way that the the sort of like how the structure of a marketplace d- uh, has a very great effect on how the market works yes. but the rules of the game are the the structure of a digital institution matters a great deal um, you know, yeah. like the, the days of forums, um, and blogs was very different. And I would say more wholesome socially than the days of Facebook yes. and, and Twitter and Instagram. Um, and that, you know, not coincidentally, uh, is, is a sort of like more dispersed ownership versus sort of monopoly capitalism run yeah. by like ruthless digital robber bears. <laughs> yes. But you know, I don't think it's too hard to sort of integrate those two things into what sort of Pope Francis is driving at here in, in totally. terms of like, we have, you know, digital communication. I feel like he's got a little bit of a cranky, you know, like kids these days on their Twitter phones <laughs> and stuff. So they don't yeah. sit down at the cafe and talk about, you know, the, the <laughs> right. gospels anymore. Yeah. But, you know, I think you, you like... There's there's some you know you don't want to throw the baby out of the bathwater so to speak. Um, yeah. there, there's some something valuable in there that that isn't you know that 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 could be uh, brought back and and not just say like you know every everything's going to be Facebook and sort of like a fascism propaganda machine, right? <laughs> yeah. Really, really, Ryan. Ryan is just really grateful because we, <laughs> Ryan and I, met through Twitter and we're yeah. best buddies. And you know, so w- without Twitter, Ryan and I would not yeah. be friends. And there you no, go. Right. No, we did meet in person though later. <laughs> yeah, well, I think so. Well, that's the point because yeah. it, it can lead to yeah. that, right? Yeah. yeah. Uh, well, you know, I totally agree with that, Ryan. And I would say, I mean, every once in a while, I do think Francis gets a bit cranky. I mean, he is a pretty old man, and. Uh, Um, you know, uh, he, the kids these days kind of things, it does creep in sometimes, but I would say, well, one, I think as writers and editors, like, I think sometimes our ability to make genuine friendships out of online interactions is, uh, maybe not unique, but it's certainly, I think more prevalent than maybe people in other lines of work, uh, right. We discover someone's work and writing online and we get to know them and then we do become friends in real life. But I would just say your point about structures that it matters, right? Like how a digital space is, what its rules are, what it's, um, you know, how it's set up, how it's organized. Uh, that really matters. And, and I think he's more than anything pointing our attention to these kind of paradoxes where that, as he put it, as the world shrinks, intolerance grows. Um, as we gain information, we lose wisdom. And I, I think his he's really and another thing he points out is that he we should not fear science and technology we just have to kind of bring them under human control in the best sense of what that could mean and and yeah. you know he says over and over that like politics should you know politics should in a way uh 
you know, it, it shouldn't be the economy that drives politics, but politics driving the economy. And so, you know, you know, yes. kind of. Yeah, he's very, he was like Carl, Carl Polanyi yes, in that moment. I remember totally. reading that. And it, yeah, it and, great. Uh, so I think that sort of thing that, that it's fine for technology to develop and for science to discover new things. And Christians should not fear that or turn into some kind of, uh, you know, anti-technological um, crankiness, <laughs> but, but should realize the the nefarious dynamics at work that we can change we it is within our power to change how these things are structured and make them more responsive to genuine human needs and real community and or maybe have them you know point us more towards real relationships that start online or you know just the way we interact with each other online those can be modified in such a way that they they uh, lend themselves more towards the real bonds and real community we should hope for and i just think those kind of paradoxes that we know more than ever but we've lost wisdom that we can meet more people than ever but we also but hate and intolerance seem uh you know uh to be spiking. He's, he's pointing to those dynamics and I think saying that whatever we do with technology and what, however we think about these digital spaces, we should be aware of them and, and shape them to um, sort of support different dynamics that are more conducive to real fraternity. Hmm. Absolutely. And maybe we can talk a bit about, um, you know, going from you know, the critique of social media and as well as the critique of the kind of hopelessness and cynicism that says, look how broken everything is, look how terrible everything is, there's nothing to be done. And then the call for us personally to to not ignore, to not be cynical, to not be hopeless. Uh, but, but then even beyond that, it seems like he does have fairly applicable, uh, you know, prescriptions for how we should think about migration and immigration yes. and how we should think about, um, you know, the, the needs of international, com- the international community and nations within them. Uh, he has this other cool isomorphism where like the individual is also like a nation and a nation should think of its responsibilities uh-huh. similarly. So maybe we can talk about, you know, his kind of call, not just to the individual, but to, to nations and the international community and, and really what he sees as necessary uh, to shift us away from this terrible trajectory we've been on. Yeah. I mean, uh, one thing he gets at, uh, which I think will please listeners of your podcast, is the, and I, and this is in direct, I'm replying to your point, not changing the subject, um, is his critique of private property. Uh, that that it is a yep. secondary right, yeah. not an absolute first order right, and that that in a way that applies to nations as well. Um, so you can see how this is. I'm getting to your point, which is that the kind of fortress mentality that, well, you know, if we let in too many of these immigrants, like our supply of water, land, jobs, money, whatever, will be reduced, and he totally rejects that zero sum account of. Uh, human uh, of natural resources and uh, just resources more broadly. And so just as he would say, private property is not really private property, uh, uh, again, is a secondary right subservient to other human needs. I think he's saying the resources of a nation are also secondary and subservient to the concern with the dignity of the human person, even if that means you let in uh, uh many immigrants that you're a welcoming place for people who are leaving their homelands because of change, you know, changes in climate that lead to drought and food shortages or war ravaged nations that make people flee uh, for safer ground uh, or whatever the reason might be. And um, so it's that, as you're pointing out, Alexi, the, the, the the kind of individual, just as uh, the isomorphism you're pointing toward, uh, I think it applies to nations too. And I thought that was really powerful. And it is almost unthinkable to imagine any political leader saying that, that, that actually our country's resources and wealth should be not hoarded, but actually put in service of suffering people, even if they're coming from faraway lands. And, you know, he does say too, that maybe our first priority should tr- be to try to make sure that people's homelands are not, hellscapes right that that you know like the ideal situation is for people not to have to move because climate has not destroyed their crops or water that war has not torn apart their nation but uh if that is not possible it's a pretty absolute command 
to accept people who need a place to live and work and, uh, you know, dwell in safety and peace. Yeah. And in, yeah, and he- incredibly like sort of radical notion. He, he, he says, um, the, the, like, if you really just take it seriously, I guess, across the whole world, it's to say that if, yeah. if one person is rich and another person is poor, they're, they're destitute. That is theft. Yes. It says, quote, in the first Christian centuries, a number of thinkers developed a universal vision in their reflections on the common destination of created goods. This led them to realize that if one person lacks what is necessary to live with dignity, it is because another person is detaining it. St. John Chrysostom summarizes it this way, not to share our wealth with the poor is to rob them and take away their livelihood. The riches we possess are not our own, but theirs as well. Yes. And that's like a, like a sort of, I, I don't know who that Chrysostom fellow was, but um, he's pretty dope. Maybe <laughs> yeah. a recog- he, was a, he was a good that, dude. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That that like not not only that 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 there's a sort of moral obligation to to share you know and share alike, but also that like if you if you have a lot of money, you didn't you didn't build that. To, to <laughs> uh, uh, you it was a you know you have appropriated the the social surplus. Yes, you know you you have exploited the working class. Yeah, <laughs> uh-huh. and, to borrow to borrow other um, phrases. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. No, no, he very clearly if you if you if you kind of like connect the dots, he clearly is laying out like a job guarantee, a UBI, like guaranteed housing, guaranteed like like it's 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 pretty clear that the world we live in today does not at all comport with what the vision here is, and it seems pretty clear what would be required to to start moving in that direction, yes. right? Yes. Uh totally, totally. Um and it's just I as you've been saying, I, just the radicalness of this is so striking. And frankly, I mean, as a moral leader in the world, um, whether you're Catholic or not, Christian or not, religious or not, uh, this document just, I mean, I, I was reading it again this afternoon and it just blew me away. Yeah. And if we took it seriously, yeah. Yeah. you know, the, the, the ways we live together the way they would change. It's just, uh, it's really calling us to an entirely different way of thinking and living together. Yes. Yeah. A true international solidarity, right? Yeah. Um, yeah, he has a lot of interesting things to say about, um, how sort of diplomacy should be conducted, you know, in a, in a <laughs> spirit of neighborly, a good neighbor policy, you might say. Um, mm-hmm. but, uh, you know, as we're, as we're sort of like creeping up on an hour here, uh-huh. I wanted to ask you about the kind of reaction to this and maybe Pope Francis more generally mm-hmm. among what you might say conservative Catholics, mm-hmm. um, especially in the United States, though, I mean, the only ones that I know of, I suppose, because um, <laughs> it seems like Pope Francis is is not particularly popular and he's he's not particularly popular like, like among the 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 sort of catholic right and it's because of his politics basically um and so you've you have you know the like a number of people trying thinking about you know converting to greek orthodoxy or or something else um you know, or or just <laughs> just sort of like spinning their wheels, or just kind of criticizing the 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 Pope in some way. But what is interesting to me is the idea that I've seen bandied around that you just need to create. You know, we we needed like a new Pope, an anti-Pope, as it might <laughs> be called, and and like the 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 this theme, which seems to me to be very fairly like at odds with the whole structure of Catholicism as it has existed for, for thousands of years um, that like, if, if he is the Pope, he is the Pope and you have to like, listen to what he says. And maybe if you don't even agree with it, you sort of have to take it into account Mm -hmm. whether how, and like, if you're not doing that, 
you're a Protestant. You are doing Protestantism. <laughs> like you are nailing the feces on the door. Yeah. No, the poor uh-huh. are bad. They are morally important. Like, yeah. I mean, have you have you had this like similar? Am I totally off base here with regards to you, the theology or whatever? You are not, Ryan. I mean, it's um, uh, I mean, the reaction to Francis on the right especially in the United States, which is very well organized and extremely well funded. Um, it does create this kind of parallel reality, to be honest. Um, and, you know, so this document comes out and I should say, first of all, I've been struck by the outlets who have simply not mentioned it. Uh, like, yeah. I, I think as of... I, I know I know which character in the parable Well, they that's are. what I was going to say. Uh <laughs> Uh, my yeah, the best response to some of these people is so do tell us which character in this parable you are. Um, but so they've either passed over it in silence, or um, I think there was there, there's a really odious organization called the Acton Institute, which is basically Catholics for capitalism, you might say, and uh, they published a critique. And you know what they end up doing? They did this with Laudato Si, uh, his encyclical on climate change and caring for our common home, and. They said, well, you know, the Pope isn't a scientist. The Pope isn't an economist. And uh, it's, it's true that like uh, an encyclical is not, uh, how should I put it, um, not a document that invokes papal infallibility, right? Um, so I, we once ran an article at Commonweal a few years ago uh, about papal infallibility, and we titled it, It's Nothing Personal. <laughs> you know, meaning uh, there's a very, there's a very limited, it's not like Francis became Pope and then magically everything he says is perfect and, you know, beyond dispute. But I would say the real problem with these Catholics who, who hate Francis and the, 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 again, the right wing opposition in the United States among Catholics to Francis is a whole different subject. But I would say at the least, it's so telling that they're not willing to open their hearts and, and just think for a second that they might learn something, that, that the shepherd of the church they belong to is trying to teach them something. And it's, they just have the answers. It's, it's, it's color by numbers. You know, it's just, I could, if you had told me uh, six months ago that this document was coming, I could have told you with a high degree of specificity exactly what that article published by the Acton Institute would say. They're just not, you know, what the exact thing Francis is calling us to, a kind of personal conversion and looking into our hearts and thinking about these matters seriously. They just refuse to engage in it. And it's, um, you know, I'm not a very good Catholic. I'm not going to get up on my soapbox and, you know, maybe I already have, sorry. <laughs> but, um, uh, but, you know, like, again, it's not that you have to just take blindly or receive blindly every single word this man says. But I do think there's a responsibility to at least consider what he's saying, and it's striking they don't even do that. And uh, and in some ways, I think it's it's even more surprising to me not that the Acton Institute would publish a critique of it, um, you know, because they really do believe in Reaganomics. Um, and I I do love in this document the way Francis uh, takes aim at trickle down <laughs> economics and. All yep, that. Yep. It's really lovely and it was a pleasure for me to read. But it's, I think it's even more telling that they just didn't even talk about it. Like First Things, right. for example, I don't think it's published anything on this document yet. Uh, I might, if I'm mistaken about that, I apologize. But it's, it's really striking how many prominent conservative Catholics have just pretended it doesn't exist. No, it's it's so ironic given the critiques that are in the document itself <laughs> that that are exactly being played out by the people that are ignoring yeah. it. Um, and in fact, he he hits trickle down economics, but he also hits you know neoliberalism for being a religion, for being a faith. Yes. Um, you know, with, the market with, will and solve. Just saying, the market will solve. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Just faith that the market will take care of everything, and and he just debunks that in in a, in a brilliant yes. way. Um, and so I, I think very clearly it's, it's a kind of like we're all convicted by it, but especially those who think that they're adhering to the faith uh, of uh, Jesus Christ, our Savior, and, and to the Catholic mm-hmm. faith 
who maybe Pope Francis is suggesting are adhering to a different faith altogether. And that might be at the root of some of these personal, political, economic, and spiritual problems. Yeah, I mean, he's very clear that religion can be, be, rather than being a living faith, can kind of curdle into an ideology. And that's what we're seeing with these people. I mean, there was, in some ways, it's almost more accurate to say, you know, that their faith is in some kind of like religious (laughs) neoconservatism, you know? Um, yes, yes. And uh, yeah, it's, I just think it's striking too that, you know, like how could you look at our world and just think that everything's working fine, that the systems we have right. are, are yes. excellent and really providing for human needs? How can you look at the pandemic and think that our society is healthy yes. at all? And it's just, um, I just think it's a shame, but... Or, or if, you, if, you, if you think that modernity is full of problems, but you think the answer is something called the, quote, Benedict option, and you should retreat from the uh-huh. world, uh, Francis has an answer for you, too, because he says, guess what? None of us are saved unless all of us are saved, yes. and we're all bound up together. Yes, right? everything is connected, as he put it in Laudato Si. Yeah, absolutely. Well, um, that's all the, the, uh, the, the questions I had on this thing. Um, Alexi, you got anything? No, I, I just want to say that I think uh, this has been really wonderful because, you know, I don't know if you know this, Matt, we just did a, a few bonus episodes on um, Martin Hagelin's oh, This wow. Life, which, you know, he's an, he's, an, he's an atheist, and even though he uses terms like spiritual freedom. Uh, but the funny thing is, when reading this encyclical and reading about how the audience and, in fact, some of the people mm-hmm. described, might, they, they might claim to be unbelievers, uh, I think it's kind of a beautiful thing. And what do you think, Ryan? Uh, some of the, the ideas, both in terms of, like, existential meaning in terms of our, our very ontology and anthropology in terms of the political needs and prescriptions have a lot of overlap. Mm-hmm. Like the, the idea that, um, that what's wrong with us and what we need are all bound up with uh, the ways that we refuse to see each other as interconnected and, and to be open to loving each mm-hmm. other and really finding in those communities, in those relationships, uh, the kind of meaning and commitments that are denied and frustrated by capitalism, I think is kind of a beautiful uh, juxtaposition. I don't know, Ryan, do you, do you think so too? Yeah, I definitely agree. I mean, he, he, he talks a lot about how you know as i was mentioning before with he he's not a you know materialist in a in a in a marxist sense um and that it's all about how how to enable sort of human community and human solidarity and and love mm-hmm. between you know peoples and groups and you know in that sense i think that it it overlaps perfectly with with Hoglin's vision of of uh, you know what what is the good life um, because it's not it's not about you know Hoglin criticizes the uh, you know the focus on the afterlife to thinking that like the whole purpose of you know living is to sort of like get your you know punch ticket into heaven and there, <laughs> thereby have eternal life yeah but. Uh, Francis talks so much in here about like concrete existence here on planet earth and how Uh important that is. Exactly. And, you know, whether or not you, uh, you know, believe in uh, heaven and eternal life that, you know, that that's irrelevant to the question of how we live, uh, together here. And, and you could have some, you know, substantial agreement. And so, yeah, I think, I, I think that, you know, when you get down to brass tacks, how do you set up your welfare state? How do you, you know, um, <laughs> yes. establish communities or, together? Yeah. There's like quite a lot of overlap between those two uh, perspectives, yes. Hogland and Francis. Yeah, I just... Yeah, so what do you think What do you think about that? Well, right? I would yeah. just say, you know, uh, as a reminder that, um, you know, Christians, uh, one of the core articles of our faith is that... Jesus became man, you know, took on human form, uh, had a bodily existence and was crucified on a cross. <laughs> and it's for God to enter into our material existence, uh, entering into human suffering and the messiness of our bodily lives, that's a part of our faith too. And uh, maybe if we're looking to close, if you'll indulge me, um, one of the really lovely parts of this document is that it closes with two prayers. And uh, the last one is called an ecumenical Christian prayer. So I, 
apologize, you know, for the non-Christian listeners, but, um, and I'll just, I just wanted to read the last two little parts of it. It's very quick. Um, please, please but, do. Um, yeah. This is the prayer that Francis closes with or part of the prayer. He says, um, grant that we Christians may live the gospel, discovering Christ in each human being, recognizing him crucified in the sufferings of the abandoned and forgotten of our world and risen in each brother or sister who makes a new start. Come Holy Spirit, show us your beauty reflected in all the peoples of the earth so that we may discover anew that all are important and all are necessary, different faces of the one humanity that God so loves. Amen. Amen, Amen, brother. (laughs) Can't, can't, we can't end on a, on a better note than that, I think. Yeah. Mm-hmm.